Business Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. Hi, and welcome to the presentation on Understanding Dialectical Behavior Therapy, Part 1. Now, if you've been watching our website, you know that this is going to be a multi-part series. So today we're really starting with just a general overview to get a concept of what DBT is like and what kinds of things you can expect to learn over the next few weeks. Now, if you're logging in for live interactive credits, like most of you probably are, um, remember that you're going to need to click on the link right under the picture right now so you can open a polling window. The first two questions we're going to ask you are for your name and your email address. Those will not go out to everybody. That just goes to our control center. That way we can get you the email at the end of the course so you can log on and get your CEUs if you decide to get CEUs for this. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on past the administrative work. As I said earlier, you'll want to put in your name first and last. Now, as I progress, you can still fill in that. Just because I've moved past the slide doesn't mean you can't fill it in. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next one, which is your email. Okay, so continue adding your name and email. As, if you need to, take your time. There's no rush, but I'm going to move on to the objectives so we can get started. Today, we're going to explore an overview of dialectical behavior therapy, which I will often refer to as DBT because it's less of a mouthful. We're going to gain insight into the development and maintenance of what we typically refer to as borderline behaviors. These are the behaviors that really can be exhausting to a therapist, but if you think about it, they're really exhausting to a client as well. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today is really getting inside the client's head to view it from their perspective. We're going to articulate the general structure and purpose of DBT how it differs from CBT or just regular behavior therapy or humanistic, etc. And we're going to help you generalize your understanding of the case studies to current or past patients. Now we may or may not get to the case studies today. We may have to push that to next week. So we'll see where we are towards the end of the hour. Okay, hopefully everybody's gotten their name and email address in and we're going to start. DBT is an approach pioneered by Marsha Linehan to assist in working with people with pervasive emotional dysregulation. Now that's a really big and intricate word, but let's break it down. Pervasive, kind of like when we talk about personality disorders, it's not just in one situation, it's in multiple situations across time. So it's not just somebody's in the midst of a major depressive disorder. It's something that continues over the period of months years in multiple areas of their life. Emotional, well that's pretty easy to understand. And dysregulation, that means they're just, they're not regulated. They're all over the place. They're happy, they're sad, they can't predict. And some of us can't predict, which is why when we work with patients who have borderline tendencies, and I'm using that term really loosely right now, um, they're the patients that we, we don't know who's going to show up, Jekyll or Hyde. We don't know how they're going to react to situations. And one of the things DBT does is look at these behaviors through a method called behavior chains to identify what triggers certain reactions. So on Monday, Jane may come into work and have a perfectly fine day. On Thursday, Jane may come into work and the same exact things happen, 
but she completely freaks out, screams at somebody, and storms out of the office. What's the difference? So looking at a behavior chain, and we're going to talk about this in depth, we would look at both days and see what happened from the time she got up in the morning until the ultimate end of the day, and try to look at what, what was the change? What caused her to get off path and have a bad day? And then we'll look at putting different behaviors in there to, or preventing some of the vulnerabilities that we'll talk about that make it harder to remain emotionally stable. This is, that's the part that I like, so I need to move on, and we're going to talk about it more. When people feel out of control of their emotions, they try to either regain control or blunt the emotions. We don't like to feel out of control. So some people will try to self-soothe. Some people will try to regain control. Some people will try to numb the emotions because it's just so out of control and so overwhelming all the time that they can't deal with it. Often these behaviors are dysfunctional and cause more problems such as interpersonal conflict, job loss, increased feelings of shame, and helplessness. So a couple of the ones that are more common, let's take a look at um, trying to regain control by having a complete temper tantrum hissy meltdown. Well, what does that do? That either gets people to come rescue you or makes people go away and just leave you alone for a little while. Either way, it stops the stimulus. It stops the input so somebody can get control again. Or blunting their emotions through the use of substances or trying to focus on other things to distract themselves. Okay, so in what ways do your clients deal with, display, or try to cope with emotional dysregulation? When they're having a bad situation going on, and you can see we tested this poll earlier, um, the question is, what exactly do you see? What behaviors are evident that you're going to want to focus on? We talked earlier about some abuse substances. Some people use um, anger. Some people distract themselves by focusing on uh, what somebody else is doing. Some people can do it in a positive way, and some people it gets out of control or it's a harmful way of coping. So thinking of the behaviors we just talked about, in what ways do these behaviors assist your clients? Okay, using drugs. So in what ways does using drugs assist your clients? It blunts the emotions. Depending on the drug, it can cause a release of, we'll call them happy chemicals, because there's a whole array of dopamine and norepinephrine and all kinds of stuff, serotonin. But using drugs can help by um, assisting patients in numbing out the pain or dulling the pain to a level that they can deal with it. Yes, it blunts the emotions. What other ways do people use, um, what other behaviors, and how do they function? Screaming, throwing a temper tantrum, pushes people away. So it stops the input of stimulus. Okay, so the fundamentals. There are certain assumptions that DBT makes about therapists. The most caring thing we can do is to help a client change. Clarity, compassion, and precision are of the utmost importance. Now let's talk about that for a minute. We've talked about compassion. You talk about that in Counseling 101. But what about clarity and precision? Well, when you think about somebody who is experiencing pervasive emotional dysregulation, things are just out of control. It feels like they're in the middle of a hurricane or a tornado, and things are spinning around and stuff is flying everywhere. We've got to say, okay, 
we can't address this whole thing. We've got to figure out what we're going to focus on, prioritize, and figure out how to work with it. And we're not just going to aimlessly throw um, different interventions at it. We need to look and ask ourselves, what is it for this person that's causing this problem at this time? That's a lot of this is. But for the person who has pervasive emotional dysregulation, you're going to realize that there are a lot of sort of unseen triggers that we need to look at, we need to work with. And because prior treatment hasn't been quite as precise, they've said, okay, when you have a bad day, you do this, so this is the way you should react instead. Well, that works for some people, but not all people. So one of the things that we need to do is help the client realize that they need to look at the big picture, all of the triggers that came in, and it goes back to those vulnerabilities that I love to talk about so much that we will get to, I promise. The, the relationship between the client and the therapist is one between equals. The therapist can fail to apply DBT effectively, and DBT can fail to achieve the desired outcome. It doesn't work for everybody. Nothing works for everybody all the time. Those extreme words that we want to avoid whenever possible, but not all the time. Okay, sorry, off on a little tantrum there. Therapists who treat patients with pervasive emotional dysregulation need support. Most of us have referred to this kind of behavior as borderline. And I don't like that term because, yes, there are people who evidence the symptoms of borderline personality disorder, which in the DSM-5 has undergone quite a bit of revision. However, it's also important to view behaviors as that, behaviors. Let's not lump them in to one particular term, especially borderline or antisocial, because that just puts other people off. Well, that person's borderline, we can't help them. Certainly we can. What we need to look at is why are they doing this? What's the function? What's the benefit? And what other behaviors can we put in instead to get them from point A, which is where they started, to point B, which is where they want to go? It doesn't matter where we want them to start and where we want them to go. It's where they start and where they want to go. Oops, skipped one. Assumptions about clients. They are doing the best they can with the tools they have at any given time. I want you to sit on that for a second. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, eh, I'm going to half-ass today. Well, maybe we do. But when, it, when it's important, we don't do it halfway. Generally, 95% you know, of the time, we try to do our best. And when it comes to not being suicidal, guess what? I think most of us are going to give it 110%. So a client doesn't say, eh, you know, if I cope, great. If I freak out, that's fine too. That's not an approach our clients take. They are so terrified of losing control that that consumes them. They're doing the best they can with the tools they have. Again, they're taking these generalized tools and trying to apply it to a specific situation. Not so good. So what we need to do is help them identify what tools they have, because they have some. There are days where they're not suicidal. What's different? There are times when they felt suicidal, but they haven't acted on it. What happened there? What made you change your mind? Let's look. Those are strengths that we can build on. They want to improve. They don't want to feel this way. Well, so that's great. That's motivation right there. But it is hard. They cannot fail in dialectical behavior therapy. They experience life as unbearable as it's currently being lived. Their experience, and in the book, um, 
Dialectical Behavior Therapy, a practical guide. She talks about, for some patients, it's like touching a third-degree burn. The experience of emotions is like touching a third-degree burn. It's excruciating. That's unbearable. So we need to help them figure out how to experience life so it's not excruciating. Any new behaviors they learn and any old behaviors that are functional need to be generalized to all relevant contexts. So why can you hold your cool and behave, if you will, and do the next right thing at work, but when you're at home, you lose your mind? What's the difference? Why, what's governing your behavior in these two situations where the same thing can happen, but you react differently? You need to realize that they may not have caused all their problems, but they have to live within their own skin, so they're going to have to resolve them. Maybe they were brought up in an abusive household. Maybe they are living in a situation that is extremely dysfunctional. Well, they're not causing all those problems, but it's important to realize that they've got to learn how to exist within that framework. So they're going to have to figure out how to resolve it in their own mind so they can live comfortably, as comfortably as possible, within their own skin. Okay, so dialectics. This is such a cool concept. And one of the things that we talked about in motivational interviewing was making a decisional balance exercise, looking at the pros and cons of change and the pros and cons of staying the same. Well, DBT, when they talk about dialectics, really talks about some of the similar things. Some things have opposing poles, just about everything you do or you don't. I want to live. I want to die. Can you want to live and want to die at the same time? DBT says yes. So we need to examine the valid points of both of them. What's the benefit to living? Why do you want to live? What's the benefit to dying? Why do you want to die? Let's talk about both ends of the poles, both ends of the spectrum, and figure out why they're existing concurrently and try to help integrate them into a survivable, meaningful whole. I want to be clean. I want to use. Well, yeah, you want to be clean for a whole litany of reasons. And you want to use. Why? Because you started using to blunt those emotions, to numb that pain, to help you cope, whatever it was. So there's a part of you who relies on that to exist, to stop some of the pain. So, okay, so there, those are both really viable beliefs. I love you, I hate you. That's the one we usually talk about when we're talking about borderline. The way people grow up who have pervasive emotional dysregulation Oftentimes, they grow up in invalidating environments. They want to love a person. They need to love a person. They need a connection with a person. But this environment that they're in, sometimes it's awesome and they love you, and sometimes they don't know what to expect and they hate you. And then sometimes they just kind of give up and they're like, I love you, I hate you, I don't know, let's flip a coin. What we need to do is figure out what the difference is. Examine. Why do you love the person? Why do you hate the person? What are the differences when you love the person versus when you hate the person? What are the differences in that behavior chain? You wake up in the morning, you see your spouse or whomever it is, and one morning you feel all kinds of love and happiness and everything's beautiful and the birds are chirping, and the next morning you wake up, you see that same person, and you're like, well, to quote Grumpy Cat, die. Um, I love Grumpy Cat. Anyway, I love my family. I wish everybody would leave me alone. Those are two poles. Some people really love being around other people, 
but the mere appearance of people is exhausting. So polarization is expected, and the valid points of both poles must be considered. So DBT is a, most appropriate for people who struggle with pervasive emotional dysregulation. We're going to help them figure out how to sort of gain control without overmodulating or undermodulating. Sort of like when you're working with someone who's bipolar and they have the manic episodes and the depressive episodes, and we want to bring them somewhere closer to the midline. Emotional dysregulation arises from the interplay of biological vulnerabilities and invalidating social environments. Linehan proposed this as biosocial theory. She proposed three characteristics that may contribute to the vulnerabilities. High sensitivity, so people who have a low threshold for emotional stuff. People who tend to, we call it, wear their heart on their sleeve. I tend to be highly sensitive. My children, um, I don't remember what show we were watching yesterday, but there was the possibility in the show that a dog might be hurt or something. And both of my children were like, Mommy, don't look. Mommy, don't look. Um, okay, so I got issues with dogs. But high sensitivity is something that means when something happens in the environment, this person is acutely sensitive to it. High reactivity, on the other hand, is taking that sensitivity and going, this little micro thing in somebody's nonverbals, noticing it, and then reacting at a 10 when most people react at like a 3. So highly sensitive, highly reactive, and then slow to recover. So slow to recover means, well, we all know people who can get upset, and then three minutes later they're over it. It's just they get upset, they say what they need to say, and they're done. And then there's other people who get upset, say what they need to say, come back 10 minutes later and say it again, come back 10 minutes later and say it again, and never seem to get over it for like a week. That's, you know, two extremes, looking at the polls again. So we need to consider why the person who doesn't seem to get over it, why are they hanging on to it? Why is it playing over and over and over again in their head? Why are they so slow to recover? Some of it may be biochemical. Some of it may be learned behaviors. We need to talk with the person. We need to understand for them what is causing this. So vulnerabilities, in addition to being highly sensitive, highly reactive, and slow to recover, if you have imbalances in your neurochemicals, if you have lack of sleep, all of us have been sleep deprived at one point or another, whether it's for finals week or because you had a new baby or because you stayed out partying too long, whatever. When you don't have enough sleep, especially when it's perpetual, you know, two, three, four days, a couple weeks, you start getting a little crankier. It's harder to deal with life on life's terms. When you don't have quality sleep, even if it's eight or ten hours, it still may be harder to deal with life on life's terms. And we're going to talk about some of these vulnerabilities a little bit more later. But it's important to recognize that people need to be rested, not just have sleep, but they need to be rested in order to be able to really modulate their emotions well. So what does that look like for someone? My husband used to be on midnight shift, and bless his heart, he would switch his shift around. He'd work three days midnights, come home at 7 in the morning, sleep for two or three hours, then get up and try to spend his days off with the family. Well, the first time he'd do that, he'd be fine. Maybe the second time he'd do that, he wouldn't be so bad. The third time he'd do that, he had this pale green color to him the whole time. Why? Because he wasn't getting rested, which made it harder for him to, like, think 
to concentrate, to make decisions. He's one of those people who tends to be really steady state emotionally. But for someone who isn't, like me, <laughs> if you have um, a long period with a lack of rest, with a lack of sleep, then it becomes harder to regulate those emotions and to deal with life on life's terms and to take it as it comes because you're constantly trying to feel like you are coming up for air. Sickness. I don't know about you, but when I don't feel well, I tend to not be Miss Cheery Miss Sunshine. Um, I can deal with things, but if people are sick a lot or really, really sick and you bring them just more stuff, emotional baggage to dump on them, they may not react so well because they're already spending most of their energy trying to get better. Blood sugar. If your blood sugar drops, people who are hypoglycemic, the hypoglycemic tend to be a little grumpier and not deal with stresses as well if their blood sugar is low. All of these things are things that we can plan for and try to reduce. We can plan to try to get good quality sleep. And if we're not going to be able to for some reason, maybe you are lucky enough to be flying halfway across the world and changing time zones and having jet lag for a wondrous two-week vacation. Well, that's fabulous. However, you need to plan on the fact that you're going to be a little groggy. So take away some of those extra stressors that may be coming your way if you can. When you're sick, you know, try to only deal with what you have to. If you know you get low blood sugar, make sure you have food around. These are all very simple things that you can start doing. Does it solve everything? Oh, no. No, no, no. But it gives you a more even footing to stand on. It's easier if we start ruling out the, the simpler things, and then we can start looking at tapes that you play over in your head from when you were a child and invalidating environments. Pain. If you're in pain, most people aren't super pleasant to be around. Now, there's pain from maybe a broken leg. You know, that's time limited. Or there's pain from TMJ or in your back if you store all your stress back there and it's constantly knotted up. Chronic pain tends to wear on people, not only because it's painful, which makes a lot of people grumpy, but guess what? Chronic pain tends to disrupt sleep. So you're just creating vulnerabilities on top of vulnerabilities. Assisting people in figuring out how to deal with chronic pain is going to be huge in helping them regulate their emotions. And prior trauma. People who have experienced trauma before and have developed PTSD symptoms may be hypervigilant. They're always on edge. They're always looking around. They're always waiting. They're always wondering. They're hypersensitive, which means they are taking in a lot more stimulus than the rest of us, which means they can get exhausted faster, which means they have less energy to modulate those emotions. See, I told you like, I like talking about vulnerabilities. Because the cool thing is with vulnerabilities, a lot of these you can start working on early in treatment, which gives the patient hope. It gives them something to focus on. Now, we'll talk about prioritizing later. You're not going to take someone who's acutely suicidal and say, hmm, Let's take a look at your blood sugar. Okay, we need to focus on life-threatening behaviors first. But in the big scheme of things, we also need to conceptualize them as a biosocial human being. Invalidating social environments, the shoulds. When somebody has a bad day and they get upset and either they tell themselves or somebody tells them, 
you shouldn't feel that way. Or you should be able to deal with that better. Well, I didn't. I can't. So what do I do about it? It tells me I am not okay because I shouldn't be reacting some way. DBT says you're reacting how you're reacting. Let's understand why. And then we can backstep if that's not how you want to react. Then let's figure out how to chart a different path. That's not how normal people react. <laughs> well, what's normal? But that's what we hear a lot. That's what we see. We see in the media. We see in other people. We see in our environment how people, normal people, react. And we measure ourselves to that. So what we need to look at is, in your mind, how would a normal person react to that? How do you want to react to that? And again, looking at that chain of events that led to your reaction, what could be changed or what could be adjusted so you feel like you are reacting normally? Critical people, <laughs> we all have them. Critical people are those people who either tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing all the time because what you're doing is never right, or they're the people that told you that when you were growing up and you still hear those voices in the back of your head going, you should be able to do that. You should have done this. You should have done that. And there are also people in your environment who have motivations other than your best interest at heart, and they're critical. I know it's hard to believe that somebody would be critical just to make themselves feel better, but it happens. So critical people is one of those things that we can look at with, with our patients and say, all right, what you're hearing, is this valid? One of the things we talk about in 12-step treatment is a lot of people have advice and feedback to give. Take what's valid and leave the rest. So critical people are critical in addressing because they are the people that provide that constant input. And again, it's not just the people who are like physically there. It can be the things that you were told growing up, you're never going to amount to anything. You don't know how to do this. And then temperament. And this is one of my little pets, you know, another one of those vulnerability things. If you take somebody who tends to draw energy from a crowd and you put them in an isolated cubicle somewhere, guess what? They're probably going to get a little depressed and lethargic and unmotivated. Likewise, if you take someone who doesn't like being in front of huge crowds and you have them lecturing to 100 people or out interacting in huge groups or going through social gatherings, guess what? That's going to be a problem too. So we need to have the person understand themselves and understand their social environment in order to um, get a better understanding of exactly what stresses them out, what their vulnerabilities and what their strengths are. Okay, so what other factors may make someone more sensitive or this week I know that I'm going to be a whole lot more emotional and I need to prevent myself from getting overtired or overwhelmed or overworked as much as possible. Again, we've talked about sleep, one of my favorite things in the world. Chemicals. We have chemicals that we take, chemicals that we ingest. And you know what? We also have chemicals that we breathe. And if you're in an environment, we went to, um, I took my kids to the orthodontist yesterday, and they're in one of those big medical buildings, and I have no idea what cleaner they used in the lobby, but I tell you what, by the time I got out of there, just walking through the lobby of the big building, not the orthodontist's office, um, I was loopy as all get out. So those are the things that you want to pay attention to and say, did something change at work? 
Maybe they're painting. We know that paint is a depressant, so if there's a lot of depressant going on, depressant fumes in the air, it may be affecting your client's mood. Clutter. Oh my gosh. If you're in a cluttered environment, I worked with a man um, when I was in Florida who, oh my gosh, he was a very talented clinician. And he worked with the adolescent boys. And I remember one time he said to one of the boys, uh, you don't look so good. And I think he used some, I think he actually said he looked like crap. But <laughs> basically, the youth had quit brushing his hair, quit changing clothes, wasn't bathing like he should. I mean, he was going in during bath time, but I don't think he was actually like getting under the water. Um, and, and Paul said to him, you know what? The way you look on the outside oftentimes reflects the way you feel on the inside. That was true for that youth. So um, you need to pay attention to what's going on in a person's environment. Nutritional deficits. Did you know that vitamin D deficiency can lead to feelings of depression? Oh, lo and behold. Um, let's see, anything else that we have on there that's come up? We talked about medication side effects. Stimulant medications, decongestants, those can also make people a whole lot more irritable. So just be aware if you tend to have reactions to medications. So in the books, that when, they, when we're learning about um, dialectical behavior therapy, they talk a lot about intrusive symptoms and PTSD symptoms. But they also acknowledge that not every person with pervasive emotional dysregulation has PTSD or has been traumatized. So what happened? Well, again, think about it. Um, when somebody has PTSD, they've been traumatized and they're more highly sensitive, they're hypervigilant. When somebody who is predisposed to being highly sensitive for whatever reason and highly reactive, that means life is exhausting. And when life gets overwhelming, the reaction is to stop the pain. And for some people, it is that pain is so great and that feeling of being overwhelmed and out of control is so great that it makes them feel like they want to harm themselves or kill themselves. So it's traumatic. Life can be traumatic. As we learned about earlier, life as they are living it is unbearable. When they go outside, they are already so overwhelmed with just waking up and dealing with the stimulus of the day that they can't hardly bear to deal with anything else. One of the things that we look at when we say, okay, Jim Bob has been exposed to a trauma. Is he going to develop PTSD? Not everybody does. What's the difference? Well, there is no tried and true thing. But one of the things that we have found, or research has found, um, is that there are certain factors that may increase a person's likelihood of having more significant problems dealing with a trauma. The number or intensity of stressors in the recent six months. Okay, you take somebody with a pervasive emotional dysregulation, that number's probably in the hundreds. Okay, so they're already exhausted. They already just, they're over it. They're overwhelmed. The amount of available and I should have put positive, social support during those stressful events. We talked about invalidating environments. People with pervasive emotional dysregulation are exhausting on the caregivers and the people around them. So over time, those social supports dwindle. Or in an effort, and, and I really believe that in, in some cases, people are trying to be helpful, and they kind of 
communicate a suck it up attitude. You're overreacting, get over it, just deal. That if the person could, they would, but they can't. They don't have the tools to stop that behavior chain at this point. It's just a train going out of control. How closely the event occurs to the person's home? Well, guess what? It's occurring inside their own body, so that, I think that's pretty darn close. How similar the person is to the victim? Obviously, this applies more for secondary traumatization, but you know what? If you are the victim, then guess what? You're more likely to develop PTSD than somebody who watched it from across the street. And a history of mental health or substance abuse disorders. If the person has a history of anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, the list goes on, you have the DSM, well, guess what? They're already starting 10 yards back. So what we need to realize is that just because they may not have a particular acute trauma that we can point to and go, that was it. People with pervasive emotional dysregulation feel traumatized every day. And it's up to us to help them figure out how to create some structure to control their behaviors so they don't harm themselves, and then learn how to experience and tolerate emotions, the good ones and the bad ones. I had a patient that we were working with. She had been in residential treatment and everything, and something happened, and it was awful. And she was depressed, and she was devastated. And she came in, and she said, you know, the great thing about being clean is you can feel emotions. And the worst thing about being clean is you can feel emotions. She said it all right there. It was the best and the worst. You have the pulse. We want to reconceptualize trauma then instead of an act or an action or an event as constantly feeling out of control of your own body, of your own safety. Secondary behavioral patterns develop as a result of constant overregulating or underregulating emotional experiences. So not doing enough to control them or controlling them so much that you stuff them down and blunt them. And we all know what happens when you stuff emotions down. Eventually, it all comes out. And you react up here to something that deserved a reaction down here. So Linehan identified three primary patterns. Emotional vulnerability and self-invalidation. Somebody's highly sensitive. They get upset, then they tell themselves, or somebody else tells them, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't be reacting like that. Okay. Well, as adults, we can often go through, if you, we've had positive experiences in the past, those of us who don't have this pervasive emotional dysregulation can go, you know what? It's okay that I feel this way. You know, we can look at all the reasons why and why this is hitting me so hard. But people who have been invalidated all their life and tell, told their reactions and their feelings are wrong, think about the addicted family, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, they don't know how they're supposed to feel. So they feel one way inside, and then somebody comes along and tells them, no, that's not right. And then they're left with this, uh, you know, what's right? How I feel down here or what I'm being told? Active passivity and apparent competence. We all know people who seem to be extremely competent. They can do work and do work and do work, and then all of a sudden, it all goes into a handbasket. And you have to say, what's going on? What happened? Well, these people are reacting somewhat to their emotional states. And when they're having a good day, they can be competent. When they're having a bad day, they're doing pretty good just to exist. You also have people who respond to problems passively in the face of insufficient help while communicating in ways that will activate others. 
So if you have a problem, maybe you get a flat tire, you respond passively in the face of insufficient help. You just kind of look at the tire and go, oh, tire's flat. And then communicate in ways that will activate others. Instead of asking for help, maybe you start crying or screaming or kicking the car or what, however you react. Then somebody will come along and say, what's wrong? So obviously, um, people who communicate in this way have a hard time identifying what they need and asking for what they need. And unrelenting crises, crises and inhibited grieving. We all know patients who seem to create one crisis after another. Constant drama, constant chaos. Well, you know what? <laughs> There's a purpose for that, because it keeps them from having to feel anything. Or they don't know how to stop it, and they're just trying to exist and tread water while it feels like the world crumbling around them. Again, you have to ask your patient, how do we get from here to here? It's also important to remember that you can't just treat a problem in isolation. Suicidal behavior, you get upset, you feel like you want to kill yourself, well, we're not going to do that anymore, if it were only that easy. We have to recognize that problems are interrelated. We have people that come in for substance abuse treatment. Well, yeah, they want to stop using. And yeah, they use to deal with their anxiety and their stress or whatever it is. But then you back off on that chain a little bit more and you say, what causes the anxiety and the stress? Well, maybe it's the people I live with, and they're using and selling drugs out of the apartment. Well, that's a problem. So we can help Jim Bob get clean and help him start learning how to deal with his anxiety and stress, but then if we dump him back into that same environment, what's going to happen? So we need to look at the whole chain and start with the big one, the safety, and then back off to, okay, now that we have you safe and stable, how can we keep you safe and stable? How can we help you handle people when they're using in front of you? Relapse triggers. So when we meet with a patient in DBT, the first thing we do is assess the patient and prioritize problems based on patient safety. Stage one are those behaviors that are extremely life-threatening. Self-injury, suicide attempts, thoughts of self-injury. Um, so we want to look at all of those and really deal with those. This is behavioral regulation. I need to know that if you feel something, you're not going to try to make it stop by killing yourself or killing somebody else. Once you have a track record of behavioral regulation where the person is not engaging in self-injurious behaviors or self-injurious ideation, then you can move down to stage two, which talks about emotional experiencing. We don't want people to just numb all their emotions so they don't hurt themselves. We want them to be able to experience a full range, but they have to be able to learn how to tolerate it. Think about um, if you've ever gotten into a hot tub or a cold pool, whichever. If you put your foot in, it hurts, and you need to get used to the temperature first and slowly, gradually get into the hot tub. We don't want to just dump stuff on people and say, good luck. We want to give them a chance to gradually experience and figure out that they can tolerate the emotional stuff that's going on. So the first thing we do is enhance capabilities through skills training, psychoeducation, and sometimes pharmacotherapy. Some of the things that we're going to talk about in the upcoming weeks include mindfulness. Love mindfulness. Talks about having the reasonable mind, which is the logical thought processes, the emotional mind, which I think of as the heart, and the wise mind, 
when I was going through training, um, another very fabulously talented person I worked with talked about head, heart, and gut honesty. And the wise mind, in my interpretation, is the gut. It's the one that takes what the head has to say and takes what the heart has, what wants and has to say and puts them together and says, this is what we should do. Distress tolerance. These are huge for people with pervasive emotional dysregulation because it helps them when they start to feel overwhelmed, when they start to feel like they're drowning. They distract. It helps them learn how to self-soothe in positive ways. It teaches them about radical acceptance, accepting those things you cannot change and figuring out how to accept it. It's really easy to say, yes, I'm going to accept the things I cannot change. It's a whole different ballgame to actually do it and mean it. We'll teach skills that, as they relate to interpersonal effectiveness, not only how to communicate, but also interpretation of other people's communications. And then we'll talk about emotional regula regulation, helping people reduce vulnerabilities. And part of that will come from cognitive restructuring and some other things like that. We need to help patients improve self-awareness through daily diary cards. Remember, it's like they're standing in the middle of a tornado. And if you think back, if you've seen The Wizard of Oz, and that one scene where the cow and everything, there, a bunch of things are like flying around, and there's the witch riding the bicycle. Or, anyhow, that's what life feels like for these patients 90% of the time. They feel like they're in the whirlwind, and everything is spinning around them, and they don't know which way to go. So we need to help them figure out, OK, let me take a breath here and figure out what the next thing I need is. Let me get some clarity. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. A lot of our patients don't even know how they feel. So we need to help them understand and start getting in touch with their head, heart, and gut. How do I feel today, really? And it doesn't have to be what somebody tells me I should feel. It's how do I really feel? And understanding that that's okay to feel however they feel. And then we deal with it from that point. We need to help improve motivation by increasing awareness of connections between the things we ask them to do and their goals. Don't just say, I want you to do this. I want you to keep a daily diary card. Chances are they're not going to do it if you don't tell them why. Help them draw the connection because this, again, is a relationship between true equals. True equals don't order each other around. So I want you to complete a daily diary card so you can start identifying how you feel and getting in touch with yourself inside your own skin, and I can start understanding how you feel, and we can start connecting the dots to understand how you get from point A to point B. We want to reduce factors that inhibit progress and draw connections between current behaviors and distress. Environmental factors that inhibit progress, unsupportive people, transportation problems, illness, chronic pain, whatever's going on. Chronic pain, I guess, would go under medical, but I didn't put that up here. Financial problems, emotional distress. If somebody's got uncontrolled bipolar disorder, guess what? We probably need to get a handle on that. We need to look at cognitive distortions that may be inhibiting their progress, negative thoughts that they're telling themselves, and social things that inhibit their progress, negative people in their environment. Remember we said it's not necessarily that they caused all their problems, but they need to fix them. They're not going to be able to change their roommate or their parent or their whomever who is negative and nasty and whatever or however they perceive it. But they need to figure out how to live with it or get it out of their life, whatever. So we need to help the patient figure out 
how to deal with life on life's terms and construct an environment that is validating and supportive. We need to assist them in generalizing new skills to the natural environment through role playing, group processing, and phone coaching. I'm going to pick up the pace here because we're almost done. Enhance therapist capabilities, insight, and motivation through consultation and support. Have you ever looked at one of those pictures and some people will see a lady and another person will see a vase or something? Yeah, I should have paid attention to that metaphor a little bit more before I used it, but whatever. That's why we need consultation. Because remember, that person, that patient that we're working with, everything is spinning around. And we're stepping in and we're seeing this slice of the pie. If we work in a consultation group, it helps us get 360 degree view of what's going on, including what our blinders may not be letting us see. We need to structure the environment to support the client and therapist through boundary and limit setting. Crucial in the pretreatment stage to set boundaries and limits and really set those goals in concrete terms. And contingency management. This talks about creating reinforcing environments, etc. Things to help improve motivation. So problematic behavior may be a consequence of emotional dysregulation. Not always. So before you just start putting anybody into DBT, you want to make sure that their problematic behavior is because they are having difficulty controlling those emotions. Invalidation plays a role in the maintenance of current difficulties. Well, so-and-so tells me I shouldn't feel this way, but I do feel this way, so I don't know how to feel different, and I don't know what to do, so what does that say about me as a person? And so I go into this whole dialogue in my own head. No, we want to get them out of their own head. <laughs> Common patterns develop as a person struggles to regulate emotion and deal with invalidation. And those common patterns are common to that person. They may be different for all eight people in your group. People with emotional dysregulation often have multiple interconnected, or what's referred to as wicked problems. You pull on one, all the others are going to start moving around. So you need to pay attention to that, and it's a constant uh, balancing act of what you're going to deal with, making sure to prioritize safety and behavioral regulation at the top. And treatment begins with adding structure to the chaos and prior prioritizing based on the patient's safety needs. The next several in this series are also going to be based in part on the book Doing Dialectical Behavior Therapy, A Practical Guide by Kelly Kerner. If you want to get it, it's an excellent book. If you don't, that's your choice. Um, so thank you for in, in, um, joining me today. And I look forward to seeing you next week.